In our series on the theology of food, we have been putting together pieces, or we've been looking at pieces of a mosaic. I hope in the weeks to come we can put these pieces together. The first is theology. Theology, although oftentimes we, we dislike it because it seems to divide rather than to bring us together and it seems to be merely information, theology should inform our behavior. So it's important for us to see that as, as we talk about a theology of food, that theology is in fact important. And secondly, is creation. What many people would call nature, or maybe even mother nature, a theological account names Creation. It speaks of creation, that which God has created. And since God is seen as the creator, when we speak of these things, it must be with reference to God. He is the one who created. He is the source, the sustenance and the end of all creation. The world is not some type of random accident and it is not without value waiting for us somehow to assign value to it. It has value because it is God's creation. It is the concrete expression of his love. So theologically understood, food is not reducible to material stuff or fuel for our bodies to run on. It is the provision and nurture of God made pleasing and delectable. It is a daily reminder that life and death come to us as gifts. Thirdly, we looked at Trinity, that creation, at least as told in the creation way, and I'm sorry, in the Christian way, is intimately bound up with the Trinitarian life of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. If God creates a world, God also communicates his own Trinitarian love. The love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is the same love that creates, sustains, and redeems the world. See, the three members of the Trinity do not live in isolation from each other, that each of them somehow claims a sphere of his own influence or his own work. Rather, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit live together. They exist together with radical equality. In some ways, I'm convinced it goes beyond our ability to understand. The divine persons are not simply interdependent and influence each other, they are personally interior to one another so that we can't say, OK, this is the father here and this is the son here and this is the spirit here. The three are interconnected. We would call it mutual indwelling. And this is the nature of reality. It's important for us to see that, that because of the nature of the Trinity, God created the world and it is a reflection of that nature you have this mutual interdependence, this mutual indwelling. True life is lived through the gifts of others as our experience of eating confirms. When we eat, it is a confirmation of our interdependence and the mutual indwelling of ourselves with creation. Then last week we looked at place. Uh, place is required for anything to exist. Uh, it is both, however, a limit and a condition for the possibility of life. The limit, I think, is something we chafe against. Then we looked at embodiment. The centrality of place is seen in the fact that we have bodies. We are embodied. This is the way that God has made us. These are not prisons. 
that God has put that valuable spirit into to sort of get us from point A to point B. This is who we are. This is how God has made us. It is through our bodies, through our senses that we see and we taste and we smell and we feel. We can see the world around us, the place where God has put us. I spoke last week, I mentioned the fact that now in postmodern life, people begin to speak of non-places. And I gave a quote from Marc Alger, who is the author of Non-Places, Introduction to an Anthropology of Supermodernity. He says, if a place can be defined as relational, historical and concerned with identity. And that's a powerful statement right there. You know, if place is defined as relational, historical and concerned with identity, then a space which cannot be defined as relational or historical or concerned with identity will be a non-place. It's a place of transience. And it doesn't have enough significance to be designated as a place. One might think of an airport, that you're simply going there on your way to somewhere else. Then we looked at the matter of dwelling. To dwell means to make a place for oneself, to make a home for yourself in a place. It is an expression of how we relate to other people. But we live, however, in a world in which we find a steady. And Wiersbeck, his book, argues even systemic destruction of the many and varied ecosystems that nurture and feed us. We want to live, but we don't necessarily want to dwell. We've also looked at the matter of bread. That from our text today in Psalm 104... That unlike most fruits and vegetables and meats, the preparation of bread presupposes a radical transformation. To get bread, you must transform grain into flour. You must change flour into dough. And then you must add the, the necessary ingredients, put it in the oven at the right temperature for the right amount of time in order to get something that's worth eating. To create bread requires a particular kind of culture, not simply hunters and gatherers just eating what we can on the fly, but in fact, making bread and baking bread. It is a way to imaginatively transform the gifts of God, as we read here in Psalm 104, into something that we can eat and something we can share with others. We talked about this last week, but... Uh, bread is, is central. I mean, you just see it throughout Scripture. Uh, but it requires transformation. I think that's important. Then we looked at Sabbath. And I asked the question last week, what if the biggest deal, if you wish, in the week of creation, the apex, was not in fact the creation of man, but what if it was in fact the Sabbath? In Genesis 2-3, we are told, And God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God did not rest because he was fatigued. It was not because he was tired of being creative. Rather, it had to do with the intense joy and peace, the supreme delight in having created the world, and the commitment that God had made to continue to give life to his creation. We tend to think of creation as taking a break, a time to escape from the pace of life. But contrary to our restlessness, 
God rests on the Sabbath because there is no other place he would rather be than in his creation. You see, Sabbath is not a reprieve from life, but rather it is putting to an end the restlessness that prevents deep engagement with our world. It gives us a very different picture of what our orientation in a place should be. Theologically speaking, and theology is important, to be properly in a place is to be fully present and receptive to its gifts. And such an orientation teaches us to be attentive and faithful to the goodness and grace that are concrete expressions of God's love. Sabbath, if practiced correctly, teaches us to savor the places that we are in as God's delight made delectable. Sabbath is not let's get away from where we are. It is to rest in the place where we are. And then lastly, we look briefly last week at the matter of gardens. When God created man, he put him in a garden. It's no accident that God did so. It is in the garden that people first experience the grace of God. Here they learn that they are recipients of a world of gifts. Creatures that are made by and dependent upon God, but they are recipients of his gifts. There they learn what it means to be marked by hunger. And I would just mention briefly, because this will come up again later, that hunger is something that is not sinful per se. I would argue that Adam and Eve experienced hunger before they sinned. Hunger means we are needy, that we are dependent. We need to eat. So it is there that Adam and Eve experienced hunger and blessing, ignorance. That's why they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and interdependence. And they were given the calling to work in the garden and to care for it. Gardens are important because in an especially clear way we see the range of relationships that join us, soil and water, creatures and God. Relationships that have nurture and feeding at their root that defines them. One could say, and Wiersma does in his book on food or theology of food, that gardens are microcosms of the world in which human life and the forces of productive life meet. They are the primary and practical site through which a culture can take shape. With that in mind, let's take on a few more pieces today. Let's begin with the fact that God is portrayed in Scripture as a gardener. If you, if you have your Bibles with you, turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 11. We'll be looking at other passages today and debate whether or not to have you look at this, but I, th- I think it's important and uh, it's a fascinating passage. Before Israel entered into the promised land, this is after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, after over 400 years of being slaves in Egypt, the Lord, through Moses, spoke of the land that they were going into and how it was different from Egypt. Look, if you would, in Deuteronomy 11. By the way, if you look at the context, the context is obeying God. Beginning in verse number 10. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, 
where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountain and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. It is a remarkable passage, I would argue. God is portrayed as the ultimate gardener. He is the one who cares for the land, who continually looks after the land. It continues, if you look at verse number 13. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Here we hear a warning against the temptation to take life into our own hands and to presume that we can control it. The history of Egypt, in fact, tells the story of a people, well, when they learned to control what they thought they were controlling, that is the flooding of the Nile every year, their power invariably became violent and oppressive. If you know anything about Egypt, a casual reading of its history will show that its greatness was not uh, founded on mercy and kindness, but rather on violence and on enslavement of peoples. Israel, God said, was to be different. They were to bear witness to the glory and power of God, a power that is evident in the rain that waters the land, that produces grain, grass, wine, and oil. They are to remember and at this point, God is still feeding them by manna, with manna and quail. God provided for them. Now, when they get into the promised land and they begin to have gardens and begin to grow things, they are to remember that they are dependent upon God's sustaining work. They should not think, oh, in Egypt, we took care of things. We had gardens and grew things. But then in the wilderness, God had to take care of us. And now that we're going into the promised land, we will do like we did in Egypt. And God is saying, no, you know, the 40 years in the wilderness, I took care of you. You go into the promised land. I will continue to take care of you. That God is the one who provides the rain. God is the one who causes things to grow. The work, they are in fact to work. They are not to be passive and, and just let everything grow on its own. But their work, the work that they do ought always to allow God to be seen and to be honored. If you are, quote unquote, successful as a farmer or a gardener, it is never our achievement. It is the gift and grace of God. If we keep this in our thinking, I think it will begin to help us understand what Jesus meant when he spoke the following words in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in, store away in barns, 
and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We affirm that God created the world. But how do we view that? And, and, and do we think that he did something long, long ago and he is no longer present in our reality? We read in Genesis 2, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. Again, how do we view God's act of creating? Do we imagine that he created and then let things go? No, God attends to his creation, to the world, by tending it like a gardener, holding the soil and breathing life into it. In Psalm 65, we read, You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for you have prepared it, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. God is continually in his garden creation, watering it and taking care of it and feeding it. God is the ultimate gardener and he brings forth food from the earth. God is the life breath that breathes, that every living thing breathes. By the way, what do you think would happen if God withheld his breath? In gardening and in growing food, people are put in a position to appreciate God's life-building ways. Wiersma puts it this way in his book, It is much less likely that we will know God as a source of life if we have little or no sensitivity for the curiosity, patience, care, attentive affection, steadfastness, delight, and sorrow that are signs of God's own gardening life. How does God garden? Well, Scripture gives us an idea in that it frequently portrays him as the one who gardens his people, Israel. We find in Isaiah 5, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And then later in Isaiah 27, In that day a pleasant vineyard sing of it, I the Lord am its keeper, lest in, and every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day and night, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them, I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit.
When we think of God's gardening, we need to recognize and remember that not only does he water, not only does he cause things to grow, but he also prunes and he weeds, he cultivates and he fertilizes. And this is the language we hear in the Old Testament of how God works with his people. We hear it in the Old Testament, but we hear it in the New Testament as well. In the Gospels, in John 15. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be, give, will be even more fruitful. You already, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. There's so much that could be said about this passage, but I would just remind you of what we saw earlier in the series. What is the character of the world? What is the character of creation? It is not made up of individuals, but of memberships. That is, we come to this world as a member of a family. We are part of the human race, but the human race is also part of God's creation. We are part of memberships. And the fact that we are members makes life possible. Such membership is not optional, though I think oftentimes we would prefer that it was. The relationships we live through, and for the purposes of this series, most obviously and practically through eating, constitute and nurture and fulfill us. What is the goal of this world and this life? It is to move from membership into deep communion, love and peace. A child, when it is born, is dependent upon its parents. And one could even say it has affection for its parents. But it is as the child grows older, and there, is, there may in fact be a time of estrangement from the parents, but the purpose of life is in fact to grow into a deep and meaningful communion and love with one's parents. However, we tend to live in ways that distort, degrade, and even refuse membership because we see relationships as a burden or a threat. We'd rather not belong to anything. And yet, I, I, I'm struck by the fact that um, people do things to sort of stand out from the crowd, and then they end up gr joining with people who do what they do. Um, it is, I think, by nature. We want to belong to something. Um, it's oftentimes the memberships into which we are born that we are less than thrilled with. When we participate in God's life, we move into communion. As Jesus describes it, one may choose to live independently, apart from the vine. But that person will not, cannot be fruitful. and Therefore, he or she is disconnected and will be discarded from the source of life. If Jesus is the true vine, 
then all life owes its existence to him. It is the effect of his love. Whether it is out of ignorance, arrogance, anxiety, or fear, we tend to exhaust and waste our lives. I think in part because we fail to recognize that God is the gardener. Another piece to the mosaic is the issue of exile. We've looked at the issue of exile in previous series when we finished uh, Jeremiah Lamentations. And so I want to limit what I say here and simply remind you of things that we have looked at before. To be in exile does not mean that you are in the wrong place necessarily. You know, a problem of location and logistics. Um, you might remember that when Jesus came into the world um, and lived among the Jews, he was Jewish. They believed that they were still in exile. It had been centuries. It had been more than five centuries since they had come out of the Babylonian exile. And yet they still saw them. They're back home. They're back in the promised land. They're back in Palestine. And yet they saw themselves as being in exile. To be in exile also means that the, w- the ways and manners of our being somewhere doesn't really demonstrate a good fit. We're sort of out of sync with where we are. To be in exile marks an inability to live peacefully, sustainably, and joyfully in the place that we are. Not knowing or loving where we are or who we are with, we do not know how to live in ways that nurture mutual flourishing and delight. And so we find ourselves in exile. For our purposes in this series, we don't know how, through our eating, to live sympathetically with the relationships, the memberships that we are a part of. We no longer see creation as a life-giving home. We see it more as a warehouse from which we can take whatever we want. To be in exile is to find oneself in a world that is increasingly inhospitable or unlivable. And this is seen in not simply in the production of food, because if you're thinking as I'm speaking, you're probably thinking about how people over fertilize or over plant and do all these things. And so in the production of food, um, certainly uh, creation has really I mean, we are in exile in that regard. Um, the Green Revolution has doubled, almost doubled the amount of rice, grain and corn that has been produced from the 1950s to the 1990s. We have doubled the amount of food that we produce. And so it's called the Green Revolution, but it could very well be called the Brown Revolution because of the destruction that is done to the environment as a result. But it isn't simply in the production of food. It is also in the consumption of food. I don't know about you, But I'm often confused as to what I should or should not eat. As one writer put it, consider the multiple, often contradictory dieting fads that regularly sweep the nation. Dire warnings about red meat are followed by a popular, mostly meat diet. Bread, a millennia old staple, is proclaimed the dieter's enemy. Weight Watchers says BAD, you have to avoid those things, bread, alcohol and desserts. And we're confused. 
in many ways we are in exile. Michael Pollan has described this as the American paradox. A notably unhealthy people obsessed by the idea of eating healthily. When did the exile begin? Well, we are in exile from the garden. We talked about this already, but let me remind you that the first human transgression was an eating transgression. Adam and Eve ate something they were not supposed to eat. They were exiled from the garden because they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How are we to understand this refusal to eat and live appropriately in the garden? Why do people rebel against the limits, the demands, and the joy that the gardens embody? Wiersma puts it this way, and I think it's most helpful. To transgress a boundary is to do evil. God gave them a boundary. They went over it. That is to do evil. To observe a boundary is to do what is right. God says, don't eat from this. If you don't eat, then you are doing what is right. To have no boundaries is to be a God. And this is what the serpent promised to Eve. As creatures, we are finite. We are in need of the help of others, which means we need to live within and in terms of memberships. Memberships that make our lives possible. Memberships that entail certain responsibilities, certain duties. We are to care for, we are to serve, we are to protect the garden. You might say, Damon, how do you know that? Because we have to eat. And we demonstrate in every bite that we are dependent upon others for the sustenance of our lives. The temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the potential it offers that we will consume and it will erase all boundaries proved too great for Adam and Eve. They ate the forbidden fruit, believing that in their eating, they would become like a God who knows no boundaries and is accountable to no one. And we, as their children, have followed in their example and their footsteps. We live in a garden home, but we feel no responsibility to take care of it. We believe that we can exceed the capacity of ecosystems and habitats by ceaselessly taking We simply take and take and take. And that's on the production side. On the consumption side, somehow we believe that we can eat without discipline, without cost or effort, and we will just be healthy people. Failing to realize that dreams like this keep us in a perpetual exile. We keep doing these things. If we are to enjoy the abundant life God makes possible, we must first become disciples and apprentices of God the gardener. Perhaps that is why in the letter from Jeremiah, we looked at it last week, Jeremiah 29, it is sent to those who are in exile in Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. 
do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in writing about Adam and Eve, said that their shame was a recognition that they were, first of all, limited creatures, but secondly, they had gone beyond their limits. They had transgressed their limits. And having gone beyond their limits, they were no longer able to appreciate them. Limits that we would call mutual interdependence. I cannot exist on my own. I require creation. I require other human beings, other creatures. Part of the problem is that limits of any kind are seen as bad. And if you put it in theological terms, limits are oftentimes seen as sort of the wrath of God against us. That somehow God's mad at us and so he's put limits on us. It's not the case. But because we seek to transgress the limits put on us, relationships are shattered because others are seen as a threat. Rather than saying, if you wish, on my side, the limit there, I go beyond it because I'm, I, I'm, I'm threatened. I think that somebody else may do harm to me. One writer put it this way, sin is a refusal of relation. It's wonderfully put. It is a refusal of relation. It is self-enclosure in a futile sense or search for safety. For many people, and perhaps for us from time to time, the limits that God puts on us, which should be seen as a gift, are also seen as just too difficult to bear. And because of that, we construct in our minds virtual worlds in which we may live. We may flee to these worlds because there we have control. There we have convenience. There we have comfort. And if you don't like the way your dream is going, you say, let's just start it over and we'll change things. We'll reshape it. Now with the internet, with technology, we can create virtual worlds. And if we don't like certain things, we can change them. And this is sad because it's contrary to what is. It is sad because we don't have to live in patterns of exile, of dislocation and disaffection. The exiles of the ecological exile, the economic exile, and the physiological exile. God calls those made in his image to a life of membership informed by mercy and care, by fidelity and love. And living and dwelling in creation is to be instructed by the God who dwelled among us. John chapter 1. And in dwelling among us, Jesus showed us the ways of forgiveness and peace and joy. We need to remember that God's love is the reason that creation came into being. And once God had created the world, he was delighted with it. There's much more we could say about this, and perhaps we will come back to it later. But I want to move on to one more thing, one more piece in the mosaic that we will look at in depth next week, the Lord willing. And that is death and eating, or death and food. Wiersbe writes, eating is the daily reminder of creaturely mortality. We eat to live knowing that without food we will starve and die. But for us to eat, there must also be death. Without the death of others, 
there will have been no food. Something important for us to think about. Wordsworth goes on to argue that we can only know death properly when it is placed in a Trinitarian perspective. When Jesus came into the world at a particular place in a particular time, God's communion life is revealed through him. And as we will see the Lord willing next week, Jesus transforms both the meaning of life and death by placing them both within the offering of God's life. Again, the Lord willing, we will look at this next week. As John writes in his gospel about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, something shows up that, in fact, we may have missed. In John chapter 19, we are told At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. In the next chapter, in John chapter 20, after seeing the empty tomb, the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary Magdalene stood outside the temple, or outside the tomb, crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. She said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Think a moment. It was in a garden that Adam and Eve sought to break through limits and boundaries, believing that in their eating they would become like gods, gods who know no limits or bounds and is accountable to no one. The results included the shattering of their relationship with each other, but their relationship with God supremely. And having transgressed and gone beyond the limits, they are no longer able to appreciate limits, what we call mutual interdependence. And so now they are ashamed because of their nakedness. Adam is afraid because of his fear. Limits of any kind are seen as God's anger against humanity. Relationships are shattered. But consider that it is in a garden that the dead body of Jesus is put in a tomb. It is in a garden that the resurrection takes place. It is in the garden where the beginning of the possibility of the restoring of relationships takes place. It may seem too much, perhaps. I'm making too much of the garden theme. But it can't be a coincidence, can it, that Adam and Eve broke their relationship with God in the garden. And it is in the garden that the resurrection takes place, that God saw his sacrifice and was pleased and raised him from the dead. And now the possibility of restoration is possible. 
I don't think it's making too much of it. In fact, I believe it points to God as the gardener. It illustrates important aspects of the theology of food, which the Lord willing, we will continue to look at next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would confess in many ways we are in exile. We do not get our food from a garden. We go to a grocery store. So we imagine that's where food comes from. Or from large warehouses. Our connection, our membership with creation has really been damaged. Help us to see that you are a gardener. You are the one who brings rain and water. You are the one who causes things to grow. We are made in your image. We are finite. We need each other. And yet it seems that we are determined to live alone, apart, without limits. I thank you that Jesus came and lived among us and showed us what it means to live and what it is to die. I pray that you would continue to guide and direct us as we go through this study, that it would transform the way we look at things particularly the matter of food and eating. Paul tells us that in everything that we do, whether in eating or drinking, may we do it to your glory. I pray that as a result of this series, that may be true of us as well. I thank you that we could gather today on the first day of a new week. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.